It is good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to be with brothers and sisters. Uh, so many of us are, are coming to this place here this morning empty, frail, weak. I'm on that list. And we need to be centered, of course, on the Word, on Christ. And already this morning, that's exactly the place where we've been. There's this, uh, a line in that second song that we sang, uh, as a person struggling in the night, the line went, then your loving kindness tore through my darkened soul. Uh, very much so, that's exactly what we're going to do this morning as we look at Psalm 102. A lament of the afflicted one. And before we start, because... I need it, and I need it right now. I'm going to pray. Father, we, we thank you that we can have your ear here this morning. We thank you that we can come before your word. We thank you that we can be centered on Christ here this morning, on your truth. And just as Pastor Andrew read for us this morning, we have a high priest who endured so much more then we will ever be asked to endure. What a great thought, a deep thought to center our hearts on as Christ, our high priest, was perfected by his suffering. Hard for us to even imagine what that means. But Lord, will you center our minds here this morning on our great Savior, our great high priest, as we look at Psalm 102, for many of us here this morning, this could be very real. For me, it's very real. You know that, Lord. And I, I, would, I would ask, Lord, that you would, by your loving kindness, show up with your truth in a way that brings us to yourself, even if it's while we're weeping and crying, but it brings us to you as a weak people, a frail people, a people in community who are walking this life together with the same aim, the same destination, and it's going to be done by the same grace that you supply us. So Father, we thank you for this time that we can open up your word. May you bless it to our souls by your Holy Spirit here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Many times preachers are told not to go to your devotions, your time with the Lord, and look for a sermon. But when it's the other way around, as you are digging into God's Word in very meaningful fellowship with Christ and His Word, sermons do come out. Messages do come out because it's what God has already impacted you with, changed you by. And this morning as we walk through Psalm 102 and look at this afflicted man's lament, uh, this, this is going to be very close to many of us, I think, as we walk this life. Uh, throughout history, God's people uh, in particular, the Psalms have been a, a great resource 
for hope, for encouragement, because we come to them hopeless and discouraged. We're distressed. We don't know where to turn. Um, But the one thing that they continually do in our life is reorient our heart, reorient our minds on truth of who God is. Uh, It brings us to God who is really our only resource, our only resource. And Psalm 102 is a psalm where the realities of a sin-broken life, the hardships, the trials, the mess of right now are confronted with the truth of an eternal God and His eternal reign. So as we are wasting away in hopeless situations, our fainting hearts will turn to confidence when we are confronted with the character of Yahweh and His eternal reign. That would sum up Psalm 102. A little bit about the structure of of Psalm 102, uh, clearly a lament psalm, but as we go through this, you're going to see there's another element. There's a combination of individual aspect, but also communal aspect. And I think that's very important for us to see and very important for us to apply here to this walk as a pilgrim as we go on this journey. Because as the psalmist, as Derek Kidner says in his classic commentary in the Psalms, he says he, he begins here with private lament. And we're going to see that. But he moves to a concern for Zion, whose destiny is glorious yet painfully slow in coming to fulfillment. I think we all can relate. Zion, that final destination. It's painfully slow in coming to fulfillment, but it's glorious. So he starts out with his private lament, and he shares that right away, even in the superscription here that we have to this psalm, not all psalms have these, but this one's very clear, very marked. It says, a prayer of one afflicted, does not name who it is, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. This is a lament, a complaint. Uh, Lament is complaint, but it is more than that, and we're going to go through that. So just like Job, in a way, the psalmist here cries out in pain. He's confused, in fact, by his circumstance. And he goes and lays this all out in a very honest way. His only relief comes, and we're going to get through that, when he's refocused on Yahweh, his character, his eternality. And we're going to see that as we move through this psalm. Uh, This psalm, as a lament, includes all three of the typical elements here of lament. There's an invocation. There's a calling to God, a crying out to God, a coming to God. And this is what really marks lament from flat-out complaining. If you're just complaining about your situation or your circumstance, it's not lament. It's not biblical lament. It's just complaining. Here, the pattern is he is calling on God. He's crying out to God. He's coming to God with this lament. And that's the second part is this lament. He is broken before God. He is going to lay things out in a very honest way and state his condition. And then it moves to 
trust, confidence, and praise. Unexpectedly. Because most of the laments that we have in the Psalms, the situation, the circumstance has not changed. But he gets to this point of trust. So I want to start by, first of all, of course, looking at this invocation, this calling on God, crying out to him. And let's just read the first two verses. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me. In the day of distress, incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Here's already desperation. We can feel the desperation because of the repetition here. We may even be able to connect this desperation with our own situations, our own weakness, our own trials. Summed up here, he wants God to hear his prayer. The first 11 verses are going to be the lament, but here he's already, as he describes his weakened condition, but here already he is telling us the depth of his desperation. He does that by his repetition. Very often in Hebrew poetry, of course, repetition is used throughout to show emphasis, to show contrast, to show parallelism, and so on. But here in verses 1 and 2, this repetition is carried to the extreme. In five, he has five requests in six lines of poetry for the same exact thing. Hear my prayer. Let my cry come to you, of help come to you. Do not hide your face. Turn your ear to me. Answer me quickly. This is no passive, half-hearted, rote prayer, formal way of saying your evening prayer. This is deep distress, and he is trying to get God to turn his face to him once again. It is an impassioned prayer because of the situation, which of course is growing out of desperation. I remember early on in our years in Russia, some of the men would come up to me and say, do we have to ask God to hear us when we pray? Does he already hear us? And I said, when you're desperate enough, you have to ask him, hear me. Turn your face towards me. When we're desperate enough, that's going to come out. And here, that's exactly what the psalmist is doing. Very interesting to note in just these verses, these two verses, these repeated phrases are found in other psalms over and over. Verse 1, hear my prayer. We can read that in Psalm 39.12 or 84.8 in other places as well. Let my cry come to you is also found in Psalm 18.6. When he says in verse 2, do not hide your face from me. Psalm 27.9 says the same thing. Psalm 143.7 says the same thing. In the day of my distress, repeated again in Psalm 59.17. This is all over the collection of Psalms. Incline to me your ear, he says in Psalm 31.2, Psalm 71.2. Answer me speedily, Psalm 69.17, again in Psalm 143. This repetition of these phrases from other psalmists, other writers, other authors, we don't know the author here of Psalm 102, 
establishes solidarity between this psalmist and the others. Between his suffering and their suffering. So the author of Psalm 102 suffers grievously. But in his darkness and in his pain, he takes up the same words deployed by other saints. This is a communal aspect that the psalmist is bringing in already at the very beginning because he is repeating things that have already been said by other sufferers that have gone through before him. Uh, Doing this, he does several things. One thing he does is he rejects the lie that my pain is the worst ever. Nobody has ever gone through this before. He rejects that lie. Because he connects his pain and his suffering to others that he knows have gone through the very same things. He also rejects the lie that he sets up, and we will do this sometimes, my pain, my troubles, my trials, they're just out of reach of God's grace. They're not. He obviously knows the book. And he brings it up to help him fight this battle. This alone should really help us reorient reorient our life and trust as understanding that others have also endured. This, This is a huge lesson for us in the community, the families of this church. We walk this together in community, intergenerationally, We build off of one another. We encourage one another. We hold each other up. It's exactly what this psalmist is doing. He is recalling other saints who have walked that same rocky path. The psalmist affirms that the way other believers have responded to anxiety and stress and trial is the same way that he needs to respond as well. This is why we live in the Psalms. This is why we learn from the past. This is why we learn from one another, from others who have walked through hard trials, from others who have seen God's grace show up over and over in our endurance. We live and walk by faith in community. In community. So already he is bringing some hints that this is just not just an individual lament, and he's going to go on to that uh, a little bit later on. So note the intensity here of the prayer. There's some other element that I want to just bring in, this calling of God. Uh, I, I, he wants God to hear his prayer. He, he wants his cry to come to him. He doesn't want God to hide his face anymore. And this is a very important element to see through the, through the Old Testament as Israel relates to God who is a God of covenant, their covenant God. When they are in distress, when they are hurting, they call out to God in this distress and they repeatedly say, don't hide your face. It's as if you've left. It's as if you have lifted your blessing off of us. Pay attention to us. Consider me once again. And it's an urgent call. It's a call into question, in fact, of God's mindfulness of them. Uh, We talked a little bit about this on Wednesday night uh, through this psalm series. Uh, The psalmist 
very often, and, and we see this through, through, of course, the prophets, through Job, they're calling into God's mindfulness of them. And the assumption is, is as a covenant God, when God is mindful of them in covenant, He hears them. He listens to them, and He meets their needs. He comes in with action as He delivers them, as He protects them. So this is a covenant relationship language of going to God in stress saying, where are you? And how long am I going to be in this mess? You're covenant God. You should be mindful of us. You need to show up. Just one example. I'm going to read two passages from Exodus. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. And then we'll jump to Exodus 3. But it says here, During those days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered what? His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew their state. Exodus 3, verses 7 through 8. So he already hears, right? And he remembers what? The covenant. He says then, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out to a land, uh, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So in dark days, Israel questions, they call out, have you forgotten us? Why have you hidden your face from us? Why have you removed your blessing from us? When will you show up? How much longer? So these questions are talking about God's failure, in a way, to appear, an act that would be in agreement with His mindfulness of them, and it brings abandonment feelings, that Yahweh has forgotten us, and such divine forgetfulness threatens to undo the psalmist. And at this point, he's already at that point. So he starts with this note of urgency, Lord, hear us, bring your face back to shine on us, do not hide it, incline your ear to us, answer us quickly. Maybe a more important note than just to show how great his stress is, is just the very fact that he came to God. Again, this is lament. Biblical lament is not just complaining. It's coming to the one who is your hope, laying out your burdens, laying out your, 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 your struggles. So moving from this invocation, now we get to verses 3 through 11, where the psalmist really does bring uh, his condition before the, before the Lord, before Yahweh, his, his covenant God, and in verses 3 through 11, we see a very desperate situation. Let me read these verses. For my days pass away like smoke, my bones burn like a furnace, my heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. 
I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day, my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Desperate, raw, honest. That's how he begins here in his lament. And I would actually posit that this kind of raw honesty comes to to the psalmist because of that covenant relationship with God. Because he knows it's not going to get any worse than this, but he knows that that covenant is kept by God, that he is a covenant God, and he has freedom to come to him and let it fly and share the deepest of truths and feelings and emotions about his condition and his state. He wasn't afraid to talk openly with this covenant God. Maybe for us, this should also be a great lesson. We shouldn't be timid coming to God because we are secure, grounded in mercy, grounded in relationship with Christ, through Christ, because of Christ. We can freely come to Him and lay it all before Him. So there are several elements that show up in his lament. Uh, he's in deep distress. He's, this is leading to frail health. Uh, he is feeling taunted by his enemies, but he's also haunted by God himself because of his indignation. At least this is his assumption. It's all summed up, of course, with verse 11. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. So just real quickly, what exactly then is lament? It's not just complaining. It's not going telling everybody so that they'll feel sorry for you. It's coming to God, rooted in what we believe about God or what is true about God. It's a prayer that is actually loaded with theology. We affirm that we are broken, the world is broken, but God is powerful. He's good, he's full of mercy, and his faithfulness endures forever. Lament stands in the gap between pain and promise. Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart, wrestling with this paradox, in fact, of pain and hope. We're in the in-between, but we know God is good, and we know he's going to complete his purpose in all these things. We might think that lament is the opposite of praise. It isn't. Instead, it's the path toward praise as we are led through our brokenness and our disappointment. It's this space between being broken and finding God's mercy to be sweet again. That's where this song of lament is sung. It's the path from heartbreak 
to hope. The direction of lament, as we see it through the Psalms, is always a movement toward trust, praise, and worship. This particular lament, Psalm 102, includes three classical types of lament. It's the I lament, and we're going to look at that in verses 3 through 5. The enemy lament, verses 6 through 8. And then the God lament, in verses 9 through 11. So as we go through this, verse 3, right away, he's describing in this I lament his condition, where he says that my days have passed away like smoke, my bones burn like a furnace. His life is about to be painfully extinguished. That's what he feels like. It's vanishing like smoke. Then he goes in verse 4, my heart is the same as my bones. They're struck down like grass and is withered. His heart, just like his bones, are also passing. They're going up in smoke. It's reached a point where he cannot even eat, in fact, in verse 4, or he forgets even to eat. All of this loud groaning, his stress, his sickness, results in that statement in verse 5, my bones cling to my flesh. As he fades from this I lament here, this uh, talking about his personal condition, he moves to the enemy lament. Uh, And in his isolation and his loneliness, Uh, He is actually describing that the only thing, in fact, that's surrounding him are taunting, mocking enemies, as if things couldn't get any worse. When he's down, he's kicked by his enemies. He says here in verses 6 and 7, and I'll just say right up, we don't know what kind of birds. This is very tricky Hebrew here of what kind of birds he's talking about. ESV uses desert owl. in the wilderness, in owl and waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. His anxiety is keeping him from sleep. Maybe that's why the ESV leans towards the nocturnal owl. He is lonely, isolated, flighty, skittish, just like a sparrow. Nobody knows his pain. He's alone, abandoned, and he has no one to care for him except... In all of this, he is surrounded by these enemies. In verse 8, his enemies are mocking him all the day. They taunt me. They deride me. They even use my name for a curse. As if when they want to spit out a curse, they just say this, this psalmist's name, and that is equivalent to a curse. No doubt this is all in a very real sense. These enemies are real enemies. Hard for us to imagine, but there are contexts where this is very real. And it may be coming to a theater near you soon. As we see then in verse 9, he says that I eat ashes like bread. My drink is full of my own tears. So he is mourning and is weeping. It's so continuous, it's almost like his daily diet. Verse 10, he moves to this God lament aspect. This is where it gets theological for him. He says in verse 10, Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and you have thrown me down. Possibly here some commentators believe he is indicating some sin on his part. However, it's interesting that he does not actually confess sin. He doesn't repent from sin. He doesn't mention it anywhere else. He just says, this must be God picking me up and throwing me. 
flinging me back down. Lifting me up is usually spoken in a positive sense. In Scripture, it's bestowing honor by God as He lifts up. He honors, but clearly, the psalmist is saying, He lifted me up only to fling me back down. All the psalmist can say here is that in the final analysis, it's as if this covenant God has abandoned me. Yahweh's face is hidden. Very similar, I guess, to Job when he says that it was God who dragged him into a chaotic storm. Job says in verse, uh, chapter 30, verses 22 to 24, You, speaking to God, you lift me up on the wind, you make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. Interesting, verse 24, Job chapter 30 says, Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand and in a disaster cry for help? This is exactly what the psalmist in Psalm 102 is doing. Even though he's in a heap of ruins, desperately he is reaching out his hand, stretching out, wanting help from God. So he moves from the I lament to the they lament or the enemies lament, and then he gets to the God lament, where he brings in this thinking that God himself has abandoned him. So his invocation, he's, he's crying out to God, he's lamenting, he's displaying this condition of, uh, of what he's in to God. He's, he's saying he's a wreck. He's fading away. And then, take note of the direction of this lament. This is the direction of every lament. It's moving in a certain direction. The psalmist will now jolt us out of our dark cloud. This is a work of grace. It is unnatural for complaining to move to trust. That's unnatural. We can't fabricate that. This is God. This is His grace showing up. And it jolts us out of this dark cloud with trust and confidence and even anticipation. So in verses 12 to 22, he is now focusing on God Martin Luther says this, everything that has gone before is looking to this verse, verse 12, and I believe we could say everything after also builds on verse 12. So he says, but you, O Lord, you are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. Uh, Previously, he was describing this frail condition, his passing away, but he comes to God and says, you, Yahweh, you are not like that. You are not passing away. You are not frail. You are enthroned forever. What a contrast. Enthroned forever. The psalmist is passing away, is burning up, but he comes to God who is eternal, who is not passing away. He radically shifts his focus from earth to heaven, from his own situation to the eternality of God, from his dilemma to the truth of who God is. And he's going to go on and discuss the character of God, the character of Yahweh, and it changes everything for him. 
For the psalmist, reality indeed has solidarity insofar as God stands behind it, before it, and all around it. He is now refocused on God. I want you to notice a shift here, a shift away from individual lament to, again, community. The writer moves to God's character, and he does so by shifting his focus back to God's people. I think this shift is required, and it's also intentional. Required because he is not just talking about himself. This is not a Jesus and me thing. You know, the, the Western world, the Western church is very individual about everything. This is about my relationship with the Lord. My, this is about my, what I'm reading. This is about what God is doing in my life. Very individual. And as the psalmist here comes, he has to, this is required because of this covenant God. This is not just about himself. This is about the community. This is about God's people. I also believe this is intentional because we've already had a sense of this connecting his plight back to the other saints in the community. Uh, Here he's going to rehearse and anticipate acts of Yahweh toward the community, the covenant community. Not just himself. He's not even any longer asking for just answers for him and his condition, but he's realizing that his well-being, his well-being is caught up with the well-being of God's people. Covenant. Covenant community. Even the nations, as he goes through this psalm, even a people not yet to be created, in verse 18. All under the eternal reign of Christ. Our relationship with Christ is not just Jesus and me. It's Jesus and us. We are the body of Christ. This is critical for weary pilgrims. This is critical at this juncture in our culture for the church to be the body. The psalmist sees that he will be blessed through God's dealings with people, the people of God collectively. So let me just read some of these connections here in verses 12 through 28. The sound of faith is now being heard over his sighs of pain and his, his despair as he praises and worships God with trust, with confidence, even anticipation. Verse 12, he says, You are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. Compared to his frailty, Yahweh is eternal. His reign is eternal. And he brings this beyond himself already to all the generations. This psalm, this, this lament pivots now on the eternality of Yahweh, his eternal reign, and his eternal authority and rule. And look at what he anticipates in verse 13. You will arise and have pity on, he doesn't say me. This is a huge shift. The, all the beginning verses up until now was all about me, me, and me. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her, have mercy on her. The appointed time has come. He is now talking about compassion and mercy of God towards covenant people, towards the nations, and even towards a people not yet created. Verse 16, 
Verse 18 and 20, For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in His glory. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, that a people even yet to be created may praise the Lord, that He looked down from His holy height to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem His praise when people gather together and worship the Lord. No more attention on just himself. No more attention on his despair. Now his focus is on this eternal reign of a global God anticipating the restoration of Zion, the bowing down of the nations, the setting free of prisoners, and even a future generation who will worship him. The destination of lament. His reoriented heart and mind are now soaked with the truth of God's character. As he moves through this lament, he reaches trust and confidence, even anticipation, because his frame of mind is now, the focus of his faith is now recentered on Yahweh, the covenant God seen in his character. He talks about his faithfulness. He talks about his mercy. He talks about his compassion, his omnipotence, his immutability, his, his glory, all because he's going to restore Zion. In verse 13 and 18, he'll have mercy on Zion. He will reign over the nations, he says here in, in verse 15, who will fear the name of the Lord and his glory. He hears and regards, he looks down on the destitute and their prayers in verse 17. He's mindful. He will deliver and set free the prisoner's even those doomed to die in verses 19 and 20. He demands worship from kings, from nations, from those he delivers when kingdoms gather, even generations not created, to praise the Lord, to praise his name, to, to worship Yahweh. That's in verses 15, 16, 18, and then even in 20 and 22. He will be faithful to all generations. He gets to the end of this in verse 28. He says, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. So again, the psalmist, his own security is now wrapped up in the security of the community, of the covenant people, under the banner of Yahweh, his perfections, his character, his ability to keep his covenant, his power, and his authority, his hesed love, his loyal love, his Faithful, loving kindness is what establishes him in the community. Very interesting how the writer of Hebrews grabs these last few verses in 25 and 27 and applies them to Christ. He says, you, Lord, talking about Christ in um, Hebrews 1, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, exactly like Psalm 102, 25, 27. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Jesus is the eternal one. He's the creator and sustainer. Those who are brought to him into his body through the new covenant, we are covenant people. The circumstances at the end of the psalm have not changed, yet his heart 
has done a complete change, turn around to focus on the eternality of God. So our reorientation. Again, I already said that lament is this process that is not fabricated. Uh, it's unnatural for us to come through complaining and get to trust and praise. It's unnatural. It's a work of grace. But our reorientation, I, I just have four, four points up here. Lament. The destination is glorious. It will come. Solidarity in the body of Christ and Christ reigns eternally. First of all, lament. Uh, it's written with an exclamation point, so I guess it's an imperative. Lament. We need to lament. We need to learn this process that God uses to reorient our hearts and our minds. Uh, this is intrinsic to our walk of faith. This leads to intimate fellowship with Christ. In the rubble, in the ashes, we cherish, cherish Christ alone. And for many of us who are broken, who have been broken and are healing, who have grieved and who are still grieving loss after loss after loss, this process of lament, God will use this to turn our aching hearts to Him, to His eternality, to His perfect character as our high priest. Lament. Church, lament. Do it biblically. Do it with the Bible open. Do it with the words of God. Lament. The destination is glorious. It will come. What does Pastor Jim always say? A better day is coming. We obtain Christ. Treasure beyond comparison, but now, yes, our suffering is light and momentary, but all of that is preparing us for the weight of glory that is coming. He holds us. He carries us. It may seem painfully slow, just like Derek Kidner said of this Psalm 102. It may seem painfully slow in fulfillment, but it will come. We will feel the gravity of the worth of Christ as we go through these trials. Solidarity in the body of Christ. Jesus and me needs to be put aside. This is not an individual thing. And you, you, you need to think about this, how often this is just ingrained in our thinking. This is not just about you and Christ. This is about the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. We're walking this together. We're all weak. We're all brittle. We're all fragile. But we're growing together. We're fumbling together. We're tripping together. God wants to use the body of Christ for the very purpose of us growing in our dependence on Him. We do that together. We do that in community. We do that in families. We do that across generations as we walk with one another, as we serve 
one another, as we grow in Christ together, as we stand with one another, even when we can't stand, even when there's not an ounce left in me to stand. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need one another. Christ reigns eternally. The vision of Christ's eternal enthronement steadies the transient, gladdens the despairing, and reassures the perplexed. That's the message in Psalm 102. The vision of Christ's eternal enthronement steadies the transient, gladdens the despairing, and reassures the perplexed. That would be us, the perplexed ones, the despairing ones, the transient ones. But as we are confronted with God's eternal enthronement, His eternal reign through Christ, that is what brings us to praise and worship. It matters in our weaknesses. It matters in our afflictions. It matters in our loss, in our grief, in our circumstances, in these piled up trials that we face every day. When we have no answers, same circumstances, Christ still has not changed one bit. He is our shepherd. He has been our shepherd, and he will be our shepherd. As we go through those deep waters, he is with us. But we're still in the deep waters. Go figure. But he's with us. He will bring us through to the other side. Even when we are fading, when we are fizzling, when we are burning up like ashes here, the smoke from our burnt up bones and heart are lifting up, even when that's happening, God is not like that. He is eternal. He is immutable. He is never weary. He is always faithful. He knows us. He knows our frame. And yet, He loves us. His loving kindness is there for us. Our frailty, in fact, has to be anchored in God's eternal reign, in His unchanging character, and an ever-present strength to us. He is our strength. He is our hope. He is our help. Lament. The destination is glorious. It will come. There may be a lot more lamenting until it gets here. Until we go to be with the Lord. Christ is what we obtain. That's who we get. He's our treasure. Solidarity in the body of Christ. Jesus and us. Walk this together. And Christ reigns eternally. That's the message of Psalm 102. As this broken, frail psalmist comes hobbling up to an eternal God, God pivots everything, changes his perspective, but changes his weeping, his crying into praise and worship, even when the circumstance did not change even when the circumstance did not change. He was filled with trust and confidence and even anticipation for the community, for the covenant people of God, for the nations, and in fact for a people who have yet to be created, he says. That's his confidence, that's his trust, and that's his anticipation. 
So let us come broken to this Yahweh who is eternally ours, eternally our strength. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your truth, even this raw, hard-to-read psalm. There are many of those, in fact, very difficult psalms to read, very difficult psalms to understand how somebody could come so broken and so honest. But Lord, it's, it's just reality. It's just honesty. And we also need to get there. And Father, will you do your work in this body of Christ, this bride, as you are shaping us, molding us, conforming us? A lot of times that hurts. And it doesn't feel good. But none of that would mean that you have abandoned us, but instead that you are with us and you are purposefully committed, intentional to bring about your purpose in our life as the bride of Christ, as you prepare her, as you cleanse her, as you ready her for the coming of the groom. Lord, continue to do your great work in us so that you can do that work then through us as your people. Thank you so much, Jesus, for the covenant that came by your spilled blood as you absorbed the wrath, the penalty that we deserved. You took that upon yourself so that we would never have to go to that place. You were our substitute And you did not brush that under the rug. You took it upon yourself. Fill us with joy, deep joy, even in trials, knowing that we stand because of your righteousness before a holy, holy God. Thank you, Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for working in our life. Thank you, Father, for your eternality that covers us, that reigns over us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and join us? We're going to